spoke to Nightcare last night, studying the hindrances, or maybe the first night of the rest of our life studying the hindrances. That felt a little more honest. And hopefully, um, over the last seven weeks, we've developed uh, an interest and appreciation of the hindrances and see them more as teachers than as foes or the devil that we have to somehow conquer. And I remember one of my teachers, Stephen Smith, um, who used to teach at IMS a lot. During, I think it was my first three-month retreat, in one of his talks, he said, you know, it's really useful to observe all of the different hindrances that arise in life in our practice and see them as misguided attempts at being happy. So we are always telling ourselves stories about life and about what we're doing. So why not tell that story, that when we're in conflict with our experience or in conflict with ourselves, in a sense we step back and we see, well, this is just a misguided attempt. The mind's attempt to be happy, but this attempt to be happy is based on not seeing things clearly. And then it's easy for us to be forgiving, and it's easy for us to understand how to help the situation. Because if it's a misguided attempt at being happy based on not seeing things clearly, then if the mind sees more, more and more clearly, it will find another way to relate. It won't relate with aversion or with greed or dullness or restlessness or doubt. It will find another way to relate. one of the passages I like from the Buddhist teachings. Mara says to a group of young monks, do not abandon what is visible here and now and run off to distance things. So Mara is the personification of ignorance and that confusion in our mind and here as a young monk or a young practitioner or somebody still on the path, you know, making our effort and it seems like the hill is steep and we have to work really hard to be mindful and it takes a lot of resolution to sit every day and to go on retreats and to observe our minds and Mara, our self-centered, foolish tendencies of the mind says, Honey, why are you working so hard? Why are you aspiring for something out there in the distance called nirvana or nibbana? Why don't you orient towards happiness here and now? Why don't you go to Caribou Coffee and get your special drink or have some chocolate or see if there's something fun on TV or, you know, whatever it is that would give us some immediate satisfaction, basic sense pleasure. But these young monks had some wisdom. So the young monks reply, we have abandoned what is distant and run towards what is visible here and now. The Buddha has said, worldly pleasures are distant, of uncertain result. 
produce much suffering and despair and are a continual disappointment. But this Dhamma is visible here and now, right? The release, the experience of release of the heart, this Dhamma is a visible here and now, immediate in result, inviting one to come and see, guiding one, guiding one onward and capable of being experienced by the wise. Doc, would you, there's a big dial on the bottom unit in there. Would you just turn it down? I think that the volume's just too high and there's a little feedback. So maybe to like 28 or something. And this is, I think, the voice of the hindrance, hindrances, whether it's doubt or uh, aversion or greed. It's somehow this mix-up where we think that um, some freedom in the here and now, that that's distant. So we seek something out there that appears, has the appearance of being close. And I think, you know, in life, one of the practical things we need to learn in life is how satisfying it is to make little steps in the wholesome direction and how much, you know, even something as simple as saving, you know, putting a little bit of money away every week or every paycheck. And then in the end, it's really satisfying to have taken care of ourselves that they are a little bit of exercise most days how it really takes care of ourselves, or just all the ways we have to make a little effort, you know, instead of letting the mess in the house or apartment get build up, we do a little cleaning every day. And it's this short-term, long-term. If we're always concerned with our short-term happiness, we may never put away any mess. We may never save any money. We may never do anything that sets in motion a more long-term sustained happiness because we're just looking for the next thrill. And I think this is one of the things we have to understand about working with the mind. We actually have to be able to intuit the present moment pleasantness or the present moment release of living in a way living in a vast way that takes in the great breadth and depth of life so that we're not just selling ourselves short over and over again. So that when we have physical pain, we just react to it. When we think of something we want, we just grab for it. When we're experiencing some heaviness of mind, we just attach to the idea I'm sleepy and act accordingly. When we're feeling some restlessness in the body and mind, we just get attached to the notion that I'm restless and then react accordingly. When we have doubt, it just feels appropriate to think about it, as if thinking resolves doubt. But it, it's the easy way. The easy way, it's the easy way because it's the way that's been greased by continual acting in that way. So removing the hindrances, going beyond the hindrances, generally means 
not doing what we're inclined to do, doing the most simple thing, which is understanding how it is. You remember from earlier in the course, I went through Joseph Goldstein's four instructions for working with the hindrances. So recognize and notice or note what hindrances is present. Don't act it out. Don't believe the thought, I can't practice until this hindrance is gone. So, you know, how much we're inclined to think, I can't really practice until I have more energy. It's like we assume that we can't practice with dullness or with restlessness or with doubt or with any state of mind. And that's a complete misunderstanding of the practice because there is no experience that can't be known. That's all the practice is, is to know that it's like this. That's why we mistrust it so much. It's just so simple. Like when I suggested tonight, and I tried to follow my own suggestion, you know, just of seeing, is it true that by connecting and sustaining with the present moment, whether we're using an open attention practice, where any object will do, or we're doing a more focused attention practice, like we take up a particular anchor, like the breath, but is it in fact true when the mind connect is connecting and sustaining attention that problems disappear, suffering evaporates, and when the mind isn't connecting and sustaining mindfulness, that problems arise. Life seems to be problematic. And we want to get this over and over again, that just by recognizing, by not reacting to one's experience, by not assuming that what's arising is fundamentally a problem for the practice, it may be fundamentally a problem for the self. If what's arising is I'm in an accident or the person I care about is leaving, then from the point of view of the story I have about myself, it's definitely a problem. And I'm not trying to deny that that doesn't happen. There are problems on the level of self. There are many things that are problems and there are many things that are what we would call successes or good things. But from a practice point of view, it doesn't have to be that way. From a practice point of view, we don't have to act it out, and we don't have to believe that just because there's this pain of loss, just because there's this confusion, just because there's this tremendous excitement, that we can't practice. I mean, this is something we need to deeply imprint in the mind, is that there's really never an experience that isn't appropriate for practice. There will be, there can never be anything that happens to us that would demand that we postpone our practice. Well, later, I'll do it later, but right now i got to do my life. You know, I have to get involved in my life. That's a misunderstanding. It's totally understanding that we'll do that out of habit, but we should never justify it in our mind, in our upon reflection, like that was appropriate, that I didn't practice that. Because it means that we've misunderstood the practice, that we think it's more, it's like we misunderstand the practice and we think being, doing the practice means being good. But the practice isn't about being good. 
the practice is about understanding how it is. So if we're being good, we understand that we're being good. <laughs> if we're being bad, we understand we're being bad. You know, we're being skillful or we're being unskillful. But it isn't about, the practice isn't being skillful in that sense, or rather the skillfulness is an understanding that when we're unskillful, there's unskillfulness. When there's judging, the mind is judging. When the mind is struggling with experience, that the mind is struggling with experience. And that's based on this understanding that the way to uproot, the way to free the mind from the hindrances is to understand them, not to want our life, our mind, to be different than it is. Understanding anger is not being angry. Understanding doubt as doubt isn't being caught in doubt. Understanding dullness, the understanding that the mind is dull, that understanding isn't dull. When the mind is clearly seeing that there's dullness, that clear seeing itself isn't dull, or restless, or craving, or averse. And it's this basic confusion, this basic misunderstanding that keeps us getting caught in the hindrances. That's why that image of the encirclers of trees, you know, the little vines that start to grow and then eventually encompass the whole tree that we read about uh, one of the first two weeks is such a potent metaphor because the strong tendency to deal with the hindrances as self as opposed to something that just needs to be understood. And we take it as self in two ways. Either I'm angry and I should be or I'm angry and I shouldn't be. So we get identified and caught in the hindrances both ways, equally probably. Either by being afraid of the hindrance because it's me who's angry, or me who has doubt, or being just identified with it. One thing important is to distinguish, you know, in terms of doubt, is to distinguish between uh, an appropriate open-mindedness, which, you know, for for this program tonight, we shouldn't call that doubt, we'll call that something else. But here we're talking about doubt that's unproductive. Because, you know, we're not changing doubt to certainty. Certainty is not the absence of doubt. The absence of doubt is understanding what doubt is, or freedom from doubt is understanding it. So we're not saying that certainty is what we're looking for in practice. It's a wonderful passage from the Buddha. There is no fire like greed, no crime like hatred, no sorrow like separation, no sickness like hunger of heart, and no joy like the joy of freedom. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of living in the way.
we need these sort of teachings or these pointers to uh, to clarify this place we are in life where we're on the fence and we can either go in a sense toward our identification with the world seeing the world as the arena of self and where self will find happiness the place that we have to engage in order to protect ourselves and to get what we want and to avoid what we don't want or this other side of the fence this other way of being which is the way of understanding the Buddha says about doubt this is similar to that handout I gave from Andy Olensky um, where he talked about how to work with the hindrances and he talks about what feeds and starves each of the hindrances and with doubt it's really interesting it's not so specific so the Buddha says there are things causing doubt right there are things in our lives that cause doubt frequently giving unwise attention to them that is the nourishment for the arising of doubt that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening of doubt that has already arisen there are things that are which are wholesome or unwholesome blameless or blameworthy noble or low in contrasts of dark and bright frequently giving wise attention to them that is the denourishing of arising of the arising of doubt that has not yet arisen and for the increase and strengthening I think that's a mistake and the decrease and weakening of doubt that has already arisen so what the Buddha is saying here is that when we see skillfulness and unskillfulness you know he says wholesome unwholesome blameless blameworthy noble low and any other contrast when we see that clearly with wise attention then doubt goes away so doubt the Buddha is defining doubt as the mind is not understanding experience clearly enough to see how it's participating in terms of what's skillful and unskillful in other words we're driving blind so we're acting in the world like we always are there's never a moment when we're not participating not thinking or speaking or doing right and that if we're not discerning the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the mind then we'll have doubt because as a creature as a practitioner at least on this mundane level this is our primary concern am I getting in danger or am I becoming more free from danger we're doing this all the time we're always interpreting the world in terms of skill and unskill whether we're getting closer to danger or further from danger whether we're aware of that or not that's really the question so if we're bringing wise attention to that if we're discerning clearly what's skillful and unskillful then doubt goes away when we're giving unwise attention to the causes of doubt like taking it personally you know we think about it occurs to us um, boy I'm going to be retiring in 15 years whatever uh, do I have enough money 
and then we think that's worthy of attention, then doubt will arise. Now, I'm not saying we can't think about things skillfully, but I think obviously we can. I mean, there are times to look at our finances and think about how much we're putting away, how much we're saving. But there are other times when uh, we're misunderstanding like the fear or the greed that's there in the mind. And by acting on it, by thinking, what we're doing is we're reinforcing the notion that I'm afraid, that life is scary, that life needs to be controlled in order to get rid of the fear. So it's by misunderstanding the, the basic motivations of the mind that we cause suffering. We keep missing. It feels so appropriate when we feel afraid to think about it, when we feel greedy to think about it, when we're confused to think about it. How, when in our life does it feel, are we motivated to drop in, to be present? to trust. Basically to trust that things can be the way that they are now. And to let our response come from that place of trust. It's not something that gets reinforced much. I forget who said this. It might have been Joseph Goldstein. If we pluck certainty out of conditions, we also pluck doubt, its shadow. So when I start to think about my retirement and there's some kind of certainty in my mind, like I need to get this figured out or I need this amount of money or I need to take care of this problem in my life, that certainty is coming out of a a story we have about who I am and what's important. And it's on this side of the fence you know, the side of the fence of the world and our story about the world being the truth. And when we do that, there's doubt because there is no story that will be ultimately satisfying. There is no story we can tell ourselves about the world, about, you know, whether it's a cosmological story or a personal story about me. There's no story that will be satisfying. Any story we tell ourselves has consequences that we tell ourselves and we get identified with. We're certain about. This is how it is. So we're replacing the certainty of a story or how we define ourselves or define the world with an opening to things as they are. That's the choice. Grasping a story, an idea or opening to things as they are. In Buddhist terms, we say opening to Dhamma, the way it is, or taking refuge in Dhamma. The Buddha, which is the heart that knows, taking refuge in Dhamma, the way it is. And what comes out of that is Sangha, the beautiful qualities of a human being, like kindness and wisdom, patience, compassion, joy, So we can just experiment. Maybe you did it tonight, and I'm going to save some time for us to hear from each other tonight. 
um, where we experiment with that, you know, seeing life, seeing the heart on this fence of getting identified with a story, plucking certainty, this is how it is, and recognizing the instability of doubt when we pluck certainty. I notice um, this funny attitude I have when I hear about or I'm around people who are sick or dying, and I, I just have this funny thought that, uh, you know, it's like uh, as if I'm psychic and I know that I'm not going to die now. But there's just like some part of my mind that says, um, you know, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be li- I'm going to be around for a while, something to that effect. And uh, so j- recently, in the last couple of years, I've started to really pay attention because that that voice just has a lot of certainty. You know, it's like this is the thing about doubt; it can masquerade as wisdom. You know, it's like I'm uncertain, so the mind has gotten into the habit of sort of pretending to be certain. You know, oh yeah, this isn't going to happen to me. Or, you know, same thing with like people in financial straits. You know, I'm feeling pretty comfortable these days financially. And, uh, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who aren't in that place. And there's just this sort of assumption that, uh, well, it, that's not going to happen in this life. You know, I've got, it's just it's not in the cards for me in this life. And that certainty. So recently I've been really trying to catch those things. Now, of course, it may be true. You know, I might have some psychic ability or some intuition that it, and it's possible that in this life I won't experience the distress of financial insecurity or I won't die early or whatever. But the real truth is I don't know. And I can practice knowing that I don't know. And, and really opening to that, so when that, those thoughts come, I don't take that thought as certainty or self, but it's just a thought. It's just a habit of mind to sort of project this. Because whether we're conscious of it or not, if my mind is living under the influence of that thought, then there's a fear of it not being true. You can't pluck, the mind can't be identified with the thought that, oh, I'm going to live into my 80s at least without being afraid of not living into my 80s. And we create so much insecurity, so much instability in the mind through all of these unconscious assumptions we have about our life. Oh, when and I are going to be together forever, you know, until we die. No, I hope that's true, but I don't know. And... uh, if I'm depending on something being true, unquestionably true, that means on some unconscious level I'm destabilized by the possibility of it not being true. I'm not prepared for it not being true. So whenever we grasp onto any kind of meaning or belief, we've created instability. And you see how counterintuitive this is. Because it feels like the way we should handle doubt, and this is unfortunately and that in Buddhism isn't exempt from this this really describes the history of organized religions it's like giving people something to grasp onto to create a semblance of truth or a re, you know some foundational reality 
and we seemingly create freedom from doubt by squeezing tight, holding tight to the belief. But we don't realize how much instability is being set in motion through that identification, through that attachment. We actually create the fragility and the the, the surprise, the painful surprise when life is what it is. And just how much suffering gets set in motion through people's, through our attachment to beliefs, whatever they might be. The other side of the fence is exactly the opposite. We're not grasping so doubt doesn't arise. And this is what I meant by when we connect and sustain attention, when we're just living life in the moment, present, there is literally no room for doubt to arise because there's nothing for that pattern of mind to challenge. Doubt only challenges fixed notions. You know, as Joseph Goldstein does sometimes, you know, have you move your hand back and forth. He uses this for a couple reasons, but, you know, in terms of doubt, he'll have your, I think it was Joseph, he had us moving our hands back and forth, you know, and if we pay attention to that movement, and we can be somewhat wholehearted in that awareness of the hand moving, you'll see there's no doubt in the mind. When we're just doing whatever life is right in that moment, there is no room, no need for doubt. The mind is free of doubt. It's just that activity happening, whatever it might be. The mind has to think about it has to disconnect and think about it in terms of our story about myself and life before doubt can form in the mind. Here's another passage from the Buddha. Suppose, now suppose that a person carrying money and goods is traveling by road through a desolate country. At a later time, she emerges from that desolate country safe and sound with no loss of property. The thought would occur to her, before carrying money and goods, I was traveling by a road through desolate country. Now I have emerged from that desolate country safe and sound with no loss of property. Because of that, she would gain joy and experience happiness. So this is the image the Buddha uses. When we're in doubt, it's like having our wealth and traveling through a desolate or dangerous place. And when we go beyond doubt, when we put it down, it's like being back into safety. So we can think about this desolate country, you know, going into danger is when we've constructed, we're in that construction of me who wants to be safe. And you see, it can get so frightening. As soon as there's a somebody who wants to be safe, then you know what's a problem? Life is a problem. 
I mean, that's the amazing thing. We construct a story about me who wants to be safe, but we've constructed it in this experience where nothing is certain. Or we're certain that it's not certain. We're certain that it's impermanent. We're certain that nobody's in control. So you see what a setup it is. This is the desolate country soon as we construct, soon as we're living from a sense of self, the story of me, we're in trouble. This is from something Sharon Salzberg wrote. Doubt and faith in our meditation practice often arise and pass away depending on what we are using as a criteria for success. The first step is to try to move away from incessantly evaluating what is going on in our practice. We need to be willing to go through ups and downs without getting disheartened. When doubt arises, try to recognize it as doubt and realize that it is a constantly changing state. So this is really an important instruction because not only doubt, but all the different hindrances are going to arise all the time. And it's like little hooks or little loops, you know, and the mind is the hook. It wants to take a hold of it. So, so much of the practice of the hindrances is guarding the mind, being aware of the mind, and not believing the hindrances as self or relevant to self. They're just arisings, states that are arising in the mind. She talks later about how, in most cases, doubt is a reflective, reflexive sign of impatience. Right, that we're just not willing to let these different nudgy experiences express their coming and going. Where it's the nudgy experience of, like we're sitting, let's say, in a more open state of mindfulness, and then some old tendency of wanting things to be more formed than the mind knowing the flow of experience, the flow of sensation. Let's say we're watching the body sensations it's just the, the flow. There's no meaning to the flow of body sensations. If there is, then there were thinking. So the actual mindfulness of body is just awareness of that, that uh, flow of sensation. And the old tendency, the very deep and old tendency of the mind, is to want something more formed, because that's our habit. We like things formed into meaning. And the question is, are we going to take a hold of that tendency to want things more formed? So maybe the way we take it, we form some meaning as we evaluate whether we're doing our practice well. That just feels so much more familiar for me to be thinking, oh, I'm not doing this practice right because I'm thinking. You know, But that's what we do. We step out of the practice and then say, we're not practicing. I mean, this is such a good example of doubt because when we step out, when we get caught in our story, whatever it is, we are in danger. We are in that desolate country. In fact, from that point of view, we should have doubt, you know, because we're not being skillful. We're caught in thought in some way, and there's real consequences for being identified with whatever story that might be going on. It could even be a good story, like I'm doing a pretty good job in my practice. But the identification, the attachment to it is going to be unsettling because 
even having the thought, and maybe previously we had had some real continuity, and then there's the thought, yeah, I'm doing pretty good. But there's that instability right there, because on some level, maybe mostly unconsciously, the mind understands that the thought's just a thought, doesn't really, can't ever really stand for what we want it to stand for. Like, represent me who's doing well. So we need to think more about it. Like, we have to do it again. And then we're in this world, when we're on this side of the fence, when we're in the world, we're constantly patching up safety and security, a sense of self. It's a never-ending job. Because whatever we create in terms of an idea of ourselves or an idea of how we are in the world, that thought, that image, is already falling away. So we have to do another one and another one. So suffering is born, stress is born, as soon as we're in this side of the equation. Sharon tells us, gives us a this metaphor uh, in terms of patience, you know, because part of staying on this side of the equation is we have to be really patient in the unformed world. Because initially, as we're hanging out over here, we're not getting caught in all the impulses to think, being triggered by the doubt or being triggered by aversion or be triggered by dullness or restlessness or craving. So we're staying just letting things be unformed, letting these dispositions come and go, but not taking a hold of them, it's really hard to be patient. And the metaphor, similarly she uses, is, you know, somebody chopping, what does she say? It's as if, it's as though you're hitting a piece of wood with an ax to split it. You hit it 99 times, yet nothing happens. (coughs) Then you hit it the hundredth time and it breaks open. But when you're hitting the wood the 36th time, it doesn't exactly feel glorious, right? So a lot of the time, you know, we're feeling that that movement of doubt, but we're sort of taking the side of wisdom that understands it's just that strong disposition to want to think about I'm not any good at this practice. We can have the disposition that I'm no good at this practice without feeding it with identification and proliferating around it. It can just come and go. And that's like that strike. And it feels like this is never going to end. We want to just give into it. Or think about desire, you know, the desire to get up and stretch the legs or the desire to go have something to eat. Oh, this sit isn't any good. I should just go have a cup of tea. Or I should go study the Dharma. You know, it would be so much more productive for me to go get a good book and read than to sit here. You know, and we put it down and it comes. And eventually, we just want to give in to it. Because it doesn't feel like resisting that disposition is doing any good because it just keeps coming back. But we don't realize, you know, it isn't the hundredth hit that actually splits the log. It's every single one. And she goes on, she says, it's not even the hitting of the wood a hundred times that really does it. It's really the attitude, the sort of conviction that it's wholesome not to give up, not to get identified. 
that's what's really transforming is the intention to side with understanding or to side with wisdom, mindfulness as opposed to to side with our dispositions and attachment it's really about allegiance and it's a you know it's in a way it seems more politically correct to to sort of talk about dharma practice in terms of trusting nature but the, the fact is our nature our habit energy is just to do what we've always done you know to think about things to overthink to get caught up to be attached to the sense of self to create it to live inside our story whatever that might be i mean even the story of i'm a serious practitioner of buddhism trying to realize full awakening and you know then we're subject to doubt you know every time the mind gets involved in some gross behavior you know that whole idea is challenged so there is no idea that's exempt any attachment to any idea is going to be a real setup for us Sharon says at the end it is also our openest possibility our patience our effort our humor our self knowledge these are what we are actually practicing no matter what happens or doesn't happen to our problems our moods our sense of being in the moment and one of my favorite descriptions about doubt comes from I think the author's name is Larry Sheinberg he wrote a very funny book and with some good dharma teaching in it he's a long time zen student and uh, he's just kind of have had a up and down or ambivalent relationship to his practice so the book is called ambivalent zen and he's taking the subway with his teacher uh Japanese Roshi to Yankee Stadium to watch a ball game and uh he's doing what he does a lot as he says in this book with his teacher kind of complaining and complaining about uncertainty in his life and what to do and so his teacher responds can't decide oh great decision Larry Song my teacher say if you confused do confused don't be confused by confusion understand be totally confused larry son then i guarantee no problem at all <laughs> and it's true that like when we're willing to let doubt aversion craving really bloom like uh, i didn't i meant to finish but i didn't finish joseph's four instructions so don't uh, recognize and note don't act out don't believe the thought that i can't practice with doubt for example with this doubt and then the last one the most important that i didn't mention <laughs> is let the hindrance whatever it might be reveal itself completely so be totally confused let the confusion blossom that's how we manifest freedom from the hindrance is by not being afraid of anger craving doubt restlessness or dullness not being afraid of it it's full bloom because what we're manifesting is the confidence like all things it will arise and it will cease it is impermanent think about how many difficult states we've been in in our lives 
with doubt or fear or whatever. And every single one has come and gone. I mean, isn't that amazing? The kinds of terror we've been in, self-hatred we've been caught in, extreme dullness we've been in, extreme restlessness we've been caught in, how much confusion and doubt we've had, things that just seem so important. It's not like we resolved the doubt, you know, like we've answered the question or whatever, resolved the particular issue. But it's just not an issue now for us. So I want to take the last 15 minutes. It would be nice. I'm sure many of you, um, each of you in your own way, have worked with doubt, found skillful ways of relating to doubt in your life, found very unskillful ways of relating to doubt in your life. So it would be nice to hear. I'll just begin by sharing uh, a time. I was on a retreat at IMS. It might have been, I can't remember. It was probably like 90 or so, 96, and uh, and I just had gotten so frustrated with the practice, I went back to my room, and uh, I was just lying there on the bed, I think some of you have heard me tell this story, it's the middle of the day, you know, not doing the schedule, which for me, just my personality, it's like, it's the only thing I makes me feel good, it's like I'm a trooper, I just do what I'm told. And uh, even if it isn't any good, I just stick with it, you know, just plow, plow ahead. But I was so frustrated, I just knew I couldn't just plow ahead. So I was just lying there. And uh, for the first time, I think, I really let in doubt. And it was really intense. And I was lying there, and it's like any thought that I didn't want to think, I just let it in. Like, and I was, you know, I had been a serious practitioner for a long time at that point. It was the most important thing in my life since 1982. And I changed my job and I really oriented my life around my practice right from the beginning. And then just letting it thoughts like really entertaining the thought that I'd completely missed the boat. Not so much that I doubted the practice, but I had doubted how I'd been practicing or whether I'd gotten anywhere in the practice, whether I was any good at it, whether I'd ever be any good at it. All those thoughts really came in, and you they really came in as possible realities. I mean, my mind really had to, you know, when we let them in, we're letting in, them in as if they might be true. And, uh, and it's just like, because I had been, in a sense, running or in denial uh, for a long time, and uh, it, it came in with a real force. And I was literally kind of blown away <laughs> by, by the intensity, like how painful it was to open to doubt of, you know, not being any good at this. And uh, so it was just moving and moving and moving. And I noticed, I think even at the time, but definitely in hindsight, that uh, I noticed that there was something transforming about that movement even though in a way the mostly I thought it was like uh, being there and thinking and it was like a real failure I mean, mostly that's what I thought that this was like like a, a serious problem and I'm really crashing and there's no end to it but part of the mind also understood that there was no way forward, that this was the way forward, sort of 
being honest about what the mind was afraid of. Really, no longer being willing to run from what the mind was afraid of. So, initially, when we change our relationship to doubt or to any of the hindrances, there are going to be these cathartic moments where there's sort of a change, of course. So instead of strategies about running and denying and applying new meaning over and over again, it's like uh, really not being afraid of the hindrance. And just starting to be lighter about hindrances, not taking them so personally. So that's just one example, but it'd be nice to hear from other people. So what comes to mind? What have you learned or questions you might have that come to mind? Yeah, Kevin. Well, I've just been kind of experimenting a little bit with delusion. Um, and I just was curious, is there, does that have something to do with doubt? And I, was, I always feel deluded when I'm thinking about it even. Like, it, what is this? And is, that, is it the same thing? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. And I mean, in, in the broadest sense, Delusion is the cause for the five hindrances. But, you know, ignorance is the primary cause for all the defilements, for all the obstructions of the mind. But more specifically, yeah, I think delusion is mostly about, or doubt is mostly about the delusion, as opposed to, you know, the obvious expressions of delusion, of greed and aversion. But it's, you know, the basic ignorance that thinking conceptualizing is the way to address suffering um, or projecting or getting identified is the way to address suffering. You know, that's doubt and it's delusion. It's like a basic misreading of life that as opposed to directly connecting and understanding as the basic path. Yeah. Paul? a new teaching job this year, so my, uh, I'm saving all my money. Maybe a little louder, uh, Paul. I lost my tenure. I took a new teaching job, so I lost my tenure. So our strategy was to um, save and create a nest. So we stopped them investing in retirement and my kids' college funds. So now we have this kind of little bit of a nest of money. And, um, you know, it's it sometimes feels a little good to look at. Oh wow, we have some money now. But then, like, what do you do with it? Um, I'm not comfortable just kind of leaving it there. So I'm like, well, we should just probably invest it. And this is where I notice there's no ground to investing. And you talk to a financial advisor, and they give you all these pie charts with different colors. <laughs> such confidence and charts and grids. And, but in my mind, I'm thinking, but how do you know everything's not going to crash? Because so, you know, I read all these conspiracy you know, theories of economics, and they don't listen to that stuff, <laughs> but I do. And so um, I'm not convinced by them. And you know, so it's like, it's one of those things where, well, how can you skillfully invest and let go of an attachment of this money growing? How can you just kind of invest it wisely so that you can just kind of let go of it and it disappears, it just disappears. And the same with retirement. And um, yeah, I found that I can really just kind of 
you know, when you when you invest, you have to do it wisely. So you start strategizing, looking at companies, and mutual funds, but knowing that it can all just go away and there's no certainty. It's just an infinite amount of knowledge, imperfect knowledge. I always just fold and say, I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like suffering. Going into the whole world is suffering. So I just let the money just build. But even that's suffering because I don't like it when it's building. I just want to like. I just want to forget the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's called Sankara Dukkha, right? So three kinds of Dukkha. There's Dukkha Dukkha, which is the suffering of like pain, emotional or physical pain. There's the, I forget what it's called, the Dukkha of impermanence. Like even when things are pleasant, we know it's not going to last. So there's even some tension when things are pleasant, going well. And then there's Sankara Dukkha. It's more of the foundational Dukkha that you just can't win. <laughs> not thinking about it doesn't work thinking about it doesn't work and so it's really this really propelled us on the other side of the fence where is the refuge what is the refuge not it doesn't matter yeah yeah th- giving up and so on, on, a, on a more mundane level the refuge is we invest in good acts wholesome motivation wholesome intentions because on this mundane level, that's a banking that pays dividends. You know, when we're kind, when we're generous, when we're patient, when we restrain ourselves from doing unskillful acts, it sets in motion uh, a definite payback. At least that's how it's described in this tradition. And, you know, and we kind of get that just from observing life. So we invest in that and we pay less attention to the other. It doesn't mean we ignore the other, but if we know what to do, if we study, and there's some intuition we should do this, we should do that. If we don't know what we should do, you can flip a coin or leave things alone because we don't know. And every time your mind says, but I should, I should, I should know, you say, but you know, I don't know. So I'm just going to leave it alone because I don't know. I know that I don't know. I can, take, I can take that as refuge that I know that I don't know. And, I, and my intuition, as you described it, and I feel the same way, you actually have some strong in- intuition, which is, this can't be figured out. It's like we have to see that that's actually intuition operating. Just like, I should go into long-term bonds, or I should invest in gold, or, yeah, this is a good time to get in the stock market. That might be intuition, but also the intuition that this can't be figured out. That's also intuition, you know, and we can just trust that. But it really, that deeper insight into dukkha, you know, we get this in different ways. You're going to get this as your kids get older and, and you realize they're their own things now, you know. Amy and I have very little influence over them anymore. The kids have a lot more influence, and you know, especially in a few years. And to, that's its own kind of dukkha. Like, you can't save them. And uh, so there's a lot, I mean, basically anywhere we dig deeply enough, we're going to experience this deeper level of dukkha. And it really helps the heart to let go, to let things be, and to invest in presence instead of control. Yeah, thanks, Paul, for bringing that up. Yeah, Rebecca. Um, I noticed my uh, last month when I was dealing with a lot of doubt with whether to medicate my child or not, and it was so painful, and I kept, you know, what do I do? Do I listen to my is is what I'm thinking? Is it intuition or am I selfing and all this? Well, when I really step back and just really 
relaxed into it and kind of got some samadhi with it. I realized the story that was playing out really had 